Hi, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Harry Kim on Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to the third season premiere of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today is the second part of our interview with Mark Cushman, John D.F. Black, and Mary Black about Mark's book, These Are the Voyages, Volume 1. And by extension, the original series. Which the Blacks worked on. John D.F. Black was the producer of the original series, and Mary was his assistant. Um, last week we got Mark Cushman's thoughts on writers' rooms versus freelance writers for TV, and today we're going to get John D.F. Black's feelings on the issue. So let's just jump right into it. Here's the second half of the interview. From my point of view, the, the variety of minds was the whole thing that kept the wheels turning. When you talk to Harlan, Granted, we had to nail his door shut once, <laughs> a, a little off we gave him, and he crawled out the window and went to the set anyway, but that's neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is that we had minds. Everybody thought differently. There were no two people on the writing team that worked on Star Trek that thought alike. No two. They were all, everybody had their own little spin. And those spins all worked into the pattern of Star Trek, but they never, ever, ever became stale. And I think some of these things become stale, the series that are on now. I, I have to say, the only, the, the only real thought I have is it was a hell of a lot more fun then. When John and I were working together, and like Mark said, one two-week period, you'd be on a Western Next two-week period, a detective show, the uh, Mary Tyler Moore, and it, it felt so alive and so young and kind of like you want life to be. But the way it is now, you have an image of a bunch of people who are suits. They may be wearing jeans and sweatshirts, but the nature is suits. And that's about all I can say about it. Yeah, and John made a very good point as well uh, a moment ago, uh, is, and Mary said it too, that it gets stale. I mean, we do have some excellent shows now, and in a way, TV is going through a renaissance with, because of HBO and Showtime and a few of the other premium channels making programs like Dexter and Breaking Bad and Homeland and so on. But when you look at the three big networks or four big networks, there, it's, I, I find most of the stuff there unwatchable. And, and it's all the same. You look at these reality shows, which really aren't reality. They're scripted. Trust me. I've done a few. And, and you just don't get credit. Whoa! So they start to feel the same. You'll watch uh, one of these, these shows, and they're, the format is so restrictive that every episode is almost identical in many ways. And it feels like a sausage machine, just spitting out sausages, and they're all identical. Now, you go back and you look at the 1960s and 70s way of doing it in a show like TOS, and because they had all these talented uh, writers with their own style and their own themes coming in and, and writing these scripts, even if John and Gene and later Gene Kuhn and Dorothy uh, had to do a lot of the rewriting to make it sound like Star Trek, you still had very distinctive points of view in these various stories because of these different and very talented writers. And that's what I miss in TV. 
Uh, where I sit, I can see the uh, television screen, and I can also see the thingy that tells what time it is. And I have developed a habit of looking at the time and knowing that, okay, it is six minutes before the end of the show. The surprise is about to happen, and we find out who the killer really is. It's called formula. Formula. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you look at the original Star Trek, uh, obviously there's formula in any continuing TV series. There has to be. But you have such a variety of episodes and styles and, and uh, unpredictable endings. We can predict them now because we've seen these episodes so many times. But when we were first watching them, you know, who would, could have predicted the ending of The City on the Edge of Forever? Or Mud yeah, yeah. So the, you had really fresh material and, and a great characters with great conflicts, which are always easier to write for than characters who don't have a lot of conflict or a lot of uh, individualism. Well, it, it gets hard. You know, uh, the, one of the great things about the period when John was on Star Trek, those first 16 episodes, and by the way, he had his hands in scripts that got produced after he left where his name's not even on the screen, but John was involved in the writing of uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, uh, you know, giving notes on all the various drafts of the outlines and the first scripts and shore leave and a lot of episodes that got produced after he left. And John did, did a, a major rewrite on Mud's Women. You're hearing more of John's dialogue in there than the writer who gets the screen credit and Miri and many others uh, because that was his job was to uh, not change the original writer's style, but to somehow get Star Trek style in there with it so they could be in harmony. You know, there, there's a lot of, as you'll find out as you read this book and, and the next book, that uh, a lot of times the person who was doing most of the writing didn't even get their name up there on the screen. They may have gotten it on the back end as a producer, but not up front. And even uh, in season two, Gene Kuhn, is only credited on the first half of the episodes, but he was developing all the scripts right through to the end of the season. That's so one of the, they, the great things about the book. It's got so much information on everything that went into the episodes. Uh, like a lot of it's like really just you know like useful information. A lot of it's like uh, you know revelatory because we just didn't know that. And, and what I like too is uh, look, you know, and I say right up front in the um, chapter one, uh, creator on Gene Roddenberry. There's people who love Gene Roddenberry and there's people who hate Gene Roddenberry. It was like different points of view of this, this man who was a very complex man and he had different sides of his personality. And he was a very flawed character, as all interesting characters are. But he was brilliant. And as just about everybody who worked at Star Trek was. And we've heard people say that for decades now. Well, you get to see it. You get to see, uh, look at the chapter on Mud's Women and look at the memo that he's dictating to John. And, and Gene is basically describing the teaser and the first act uh, of that episode as John would then write it with a dictaphone late at night, probably having one or two drinks in him. Right, John? And, and yet you see, the, you see his imagination coming alive in his own words as he's just making this stuff up as he goes along. And, and so you get to actually witness the genius of these various characters. And I apply that to John as well and Harlan and all of them through their various notes and memos and, and so forth. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, it, when like, like you were saying before, when you're watching a TV show, you see a million credits from a million producers. And unless you know the story behind the story, lots of times you don't know exactly what it is that credit means. 
And, you know, this book really sheds light on, on that. It's, it's really great just from a, not even Star Trek, but just television in general. You know, it is yeah, kind of like... people have said that. Mark Altman, I think, uh, who was the producer yeah. on Free Enterprise, which I just mm-hmm. watched again tonight, and it's delightful. Uh, he said it's, it's not only the best book on Star Trek, but probably the best book on a TV series, period, because you don't have to like Star Trek to enjoy the book. It helps if you like it and love it. But it, it really lets you to see what it's like to work on a TV show as a part of the writing staff or part of the production staff. And I used my background in TV to be able to convey that. But I had all the raw information here and all these memos that uh, Gene and Bob Justman saved. So it's, it's a, and the interesting memo, by the way. I'll just toss this in. It won't be until book three that you see this memo because that's when it came up. Spoilers. But uh, Bob Justman sent a memo to Gene Roddenberry. And you know how clever Bob Justman's memos were just from what you've been reading in book one. Yeah. And Gene wrote back to Bob, and this is going to be in the book. He writes a memo back to Bob, and he says, he says, Bob, all of us writers can only hope that one day in our life, or one day after we're gone, actually, that some biogra- biographer is digging through all of our papers and all of our letters and all of our memos to try to figure out why we did what we did and how much work we put into it, and so forth. And he said, and that memo you just wrote to me has to go into that book. And it does. It goes into These Are the Voyages, Volume 3. Oh, my God, that must have been freaky. Yeah. <laughs> I got chills. <laughs> He's writing about me in the past. That's right. That's, a, it was that's like, really it, cool. But, you know, it shows why Gene and Bob saved all these memos and, and why they lived in memos. Because most most TV shows don't. You have a meeting, you do it on the phone, or you meet in a room. But in Star Trek, everybody was dictating memos back and forth. And uh, it's not necessarily the most efficient way to do it time-wise, but it allowed the history of this show now to be there, to be documented and told. Uh, and most other shows don't do that. There was no other way to communicate. Bobby Justman had a job. His job was to see that the production worked and that everything that we had in script-wise could be done. Gene Roddenberry, on the other hand, had Desilu to deal with, he had the network to deal with, and he had, his, he had the first meeting with most writers himself to deal with. I had my job, so that there was no other way for us to communicate with each other other than to write memos. You'd write it down, bang, it'd pass over, Bobby get a copy, Jeannie get a copy. We did have the first mimeograph I've ever seen. Mimeo copy machine. I'd never seen a copy machine like that before, and I was thrilled because it made everything much easier. (laughs) We didn't have no carbon paper, none of that nonsense, and it was very good for memos. So that's the way it went. We might have to fudge some of that for the TV adaptation of this story. <laughs> well, you know what's, what's wonderful there, and, and believe me, I've been having discussions on this, is this could be, I would watch it in a minute. Oh, heck I'm yeah. Gonna out, I'm going to go out and pitch it and present it because it's something that I know I would watch, so I know there's an audience for it. Uh, we just saw two movies made on Alfred Hitchcock this last year, one for HBO and one for the theaters. One dealt with the production of The Birds, the other dealt with the production of Psycho. I watched them both and loved every minute of them. I think you could do an episode, a making of, on every episode that was made for Star Trek. There's so much drama 
in the making of every single episode of Star Trek, as you find out, between the writing, the production, trying to create special effects that had never been seen before, dealing with a network that didn't appreciate what it had. Uh, and we can talk about that in a moment if you like to, about the ratings. How come the ratings are so good? I print the ratings in there for every episode. We've been told for decades that Star Trek was a complete failure on NBC. And you're seeing ratings now for each episode where it's a strong number two in its time slot up against formidable competition and quite often winning its time slot on many weeks, winning its time slot and pulling in sometimes as high as a 47% share of all the TVs in America running, yeah. which equated to over 20 million people watching each episode, which is more than watch, watching the number one rated show on TV now. So you got to wonder what was going on. Well, what was going on was that Star Trek was presenting stories that NBC wasn't comfortable airing. Look at John's script. You know, John wrote so many scripts there, but the one that he has his name on uh, is The Naked Time. All these characters showing their, their guts inside out. And it was like the fifth episode produced. I mean, how daring is that? You're showing Spock crying and saying he could never love his mother or never admit to her that he loved her. And Kirk obsessing over the ship and saying, I'll never lose you. You know, I, I don't have a life. You are my only life, and I will never lose you. And things like that. And then the enemy within with uh, him trying to uh, attack and rape uh, Yeoman Rand. Uh, these stories were just so edgy. And doing stories about Vietnam and doing stories about racism and overpopulation and sexism and religion. Uh, it's not what NBC really wanted to have on their prime time schedule. I'm actually, I'm actually really looking forward to the book three because the, the legend is that Gene Roddenberry just didn't do anything for the whole year. Well, and, it's a, lot of, a lot of the folklore is wrong, as you're finding out in book yeah, one. And yeah. you're going to find out that the folklore continues to be wrong. Nobody's taken the time to go look at all these documents. It's all there. Uh, nobody was crazy enough to take the time because it took a lot of time. And nobody was crazy enough to buy the uh, license, the Nielsen's ratings, which weren't cheap. But mm. I was determined to show that what the show was doing. I was around back then. I was 14, 15, 16, and, and I didn't know anybody who wasn't watching Star Trek. So how come we kept getting told that it wasn't doing well in the ratings? And every time they tried to cancel it, they'd get hundreds of thousands of protest letters. It got more fan mail than the monkeys which was the most popular show on TV as far as fan mail was considered, and except Star Trek would tie it. And uh, so it had a huge audience. We just weren't being told that because the network wasn't sure they wanted to keep the show on the air for two reasons. One was the stories that were being told, and we can blame Mr. Black for some of those, and, and <laughs> or thank him for some of those. And the other was they just didn't get along with Gene. And, and John and Mary can tell you, in TV, it's about relationships. If you're not getting along with your producer, you don't want that producer's show on your or your channel. Mr. Black, I, this show is sort of dedicated to looking at uh, Star Trek creators and, and looking at, you know, kind of shining a spotlight on, on their other work. And you've written dozens of, of TV shows and movies. So I'm curious, what do you consider to be the best work of your career? Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh. I really don't know. I worked hard on every piece that I ever did, except a couple. Mary was absolutely <laughs> ready to phone out of my hand and say you fluffed a couple, too. No, but, I wasn't. Wait, here she is. I was going to say was that John, for years, would say, 
it's like saying, which of your children do you love the most? I've got to tell you, there's there's one episode, one, it wasn't an episode, it was a movie for television that I really hated. John loved it. I, I don't I don't think he would be capable of picking one out. But it, and looking over a list, do you get some sense, John? No. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at a pile of my, uh, the, the, the total of my credits. There are about nine or ten pages here in my lap with about 15 script titles on each or ten. And I can't find one in there that I like better than any other. You had the most other. fun on Laredo. Yeah, I did. John had the most fun on Laredo. The most, the most free, jump into it with both feet and just have a good time writing. But not necessarily considered his, he wouldn't consider it his best. It's just wonderful. <laughs> no, there, there were, it's, it's very difficult to try and pick one. Because uh, I loved my version of Naked Time. I did not like particularly the joke that Gene put in, or many of the things that he put in. But that's neither here nor there. That probably happened to dozens of other scripts, too. Uh, and I really can't tell you which I liked. What I do want to do is first apologize for having used that four-letter word earlier. That's uh, oh, okay. Because <laughs> I've never heard not... John say that word before. He doesn't talk that way. No, I don't. But that is what I said to the producer at that time, and I just re it was like playing it back in my head. And that's why I said it, and I apologize very much to you and to your audience for ever having said that word publicly again. <laughs> you don't have to apologize it's, at it's, all. It's fine. It's fine. I, I can tell you right now, uh, John won't do it, so I'll say. I haven't, I haven't seen uh, everything John's written, but I've seen quite a few of his scripts over the years. I would notice his name on all kinds of shows when I was growing up. And uh, he wrote a combat episode called Survival, which uh, got Vic Morrow nominated for an Emmy. Uh, and it just a, a stirring episode to watch. Uh, he he wrote uh, some of the first Hawaii Five O's. He was one of their head writers during the first season, and got that show going. He won a, a Writers Guild Award for a, uh, a Novak episode. He won an Edgar Allan Poe Award for what? What was that for, John? For Thief. For Thief. That was um, a TV movie, right? Yeah. yeah. And and uh, and of course, The Naked Time was nominated for a Hugo Award, and John wrote the first uh, first draft of The Menagerie which ended up winning the Hugo Award. Uh, Gene rewrote it, but uh, John did the first draft script of that for the envelope. So he's written so many, and, and let's not forget, he wrote the first Shaft, yes. the first motion picture Shaft, which started uh, black exploitation movies. Uh, and now we know why they were called black exploitation, because John Black wrote the first one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what, a great joke. <laughs> what a great career, huh? Yeah, I, I just watched Shaft again uh, this week, and the dialogue in that movie is amazing. Uh, it, that, that's a great movie. And that's all John. He, sh he shared the writing credit with the, uh, uh, the guy who did the, the book, was it John? But jo John did the script, and uh, so that's all his dialogue. Yeah, we, we have a friend who just won't stop quoting that movie. I know every line in that dialogue, even though I've only seen it like three times, just because my friend thinks it has like the best dialogue ever in movie history. So... That, that is a great movie. Oh, we, and we have to give Mary credit, too, because uh, uh, I, I write with Sue Osborne, and she's my good right-hand woman. 
and uh, I'm, I'm sure Mary was coming up with a lot of lines for some of these scripts as well. Is that right, Mary? No, I never talk like that, ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that was one of the things that I loved about the book is, is the way that it really uh, showed everyone who worked on it, you know, and, and you really got a sense of, you know, the fact that it wasn't just one person. It was really a team effort all the way around. So that, yeah. that was really cool. I, well, I call it magical, you know, and, and I do compare it to the Beatles because the Beatles were happening at the same time as the original Star Trek. And if you imagine the Beatles without John Lennon or with John but without Paul McCartney, it wouldn't have been the same. And you look at Star Trek, and it was just this magical thing that brought Gene Roddenberry and John Black and Dorothy Fontana and Bob Justman uh, and William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and all these, these people together. Now, just those names I mentioned, take any one of them out of this stew, and the stew is not going to taste the same. For sure. You know, so it really was a, uh, a gourmet meal in that respect of just all these these the right people at the right time that somehow fate brought them all together to make this show. And that's why we're still talking about it 45 years later. You know, it was Jeffrey Hunter that was supposed to be the captain. He bowed out after the first pilot didn't sell because his contract gave him that escape clause that if the pilot didn't sell, he wouldn't have to do the five-year mission. Well, of course, he wanted to do it, or he thought he did until he did the pilot. And the pilot took uh, 14 days to film, and it was supposed to take eight <laughs> So he said, oh, God, this is going to take over my life. I won't have a life if I do this show. So he backed out. Well, Gene then went to Lloyd Bridges, who said no, who, who did Sea Hunt. And then he went to Jack Lord, pre-Hawaii Five-0, but Jack Lord was, uh, had a series of his own called Stony Burke that had just gotten canceled. And Jack Lord said he would do it, but he wanted a big ownership piece in the show. So they had to say no to him. And then William Shatner had a series called For the People, which just got canceled, and suddenly he was available and they grabbed him. And, and so it's just funny how people are brought to it because, you know, who else could have played Spock than Nimoy? They had other people in mind. As a matter of fact, as you read book two, you're going to find out they almost didn't have Spock in the second season of Star Trek. Uh, there was a dispute, and Nimoy almost left the show. And they were writing these episodes and just weeks away from starting to film season two, and they didn't have a contract with Nimoy, and it didn't look like they were going to have one. So they were trying to find a replacement, not to play Spock, but to play another Vulcan who would be assigned to the Enterprise. Whoa. And one of the wow. one of the guys they were considering was David Carradine, who went what? on. To play. Oh my god! <laughs> now you oh my god! See. That is a heck of a teaser for the next book. Yeah. Now you can. You see just sold a bunch a of copies. Because David Carradine had interesting bone structure too, and you could see that put ears on him, he might have been an interesting guy. They were thinking of Mark Leonard. Uh, as the, the resident Vulcan, because they had tried him out with the ears in season one as a Romulan, and they thought he could do it, but a little older than they wanted. And so they uh, had Lawrence Montague, uh under contract to play the new Star Trek, the new Spock, or the new character that would take the place of Spock. Well, thank God they worked the deal out, uh, because I just can't imagine the original Star Trek without Leonard Nimoy, or yeah. William Shatner, or John Black, or any of these people. It was just magical. What can we expect from book two and three? I mean, I know you gave us a big teaser on book two, um, but is there anything that you, you want to just uh, to say about, about the, the upcoming volumes? Happy to. Oh, you want me to plug my work? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, book two, we find out about the whole 
and I'm almost losing Leonard Nimoy. And okay, I, I've spilled the beans, but again, you have to read it because, as you said, it's like watching a movie. It mm-hmm. just plays out in front of you, and you feel the drama of the situation. Uh, also, why did Gene Kuhn leave the show in the second season? And he didn't leave it as early as you might think, because even though his name wasn't on the screen, he kept working on that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened between him and Gene Roddenberry? You're going to find out about that. And that's never really been revealed or discussed. And what about the drama of Desi Lu finally saying, Lucy, you've lost your studio. We're going to have to sell to Paramount. Well, we know it happened, but you've got to read it to feel it. And, and the budget being brought down and the whole write-in campaign. We know about the write-in campaign, but you don't know everything behind that and all the drama and how close it came. You don't know that in the second year and the third year, they would get an order for 16 episodes. And they would be in the middle of filming the 16th episode, not even knowing if there was going to be a 17th. And yet they're writing it because they have to have it ready to go before the cameras next week just in case NBC comes forward and says, give us more episodes. But they would be shooting these things not even knowing if they're going to be back next week. Imagine the drama that was going on for the writing staff to prepare the scripts, but also for the cast on the set of not knowing if this is the last one. And this happened time and time again. That's amazing. Yeah, NBC would come back and say, well, we'll order two more episodes because we're still analyzing the ratings. And so, okay, we just got uh, our life extended for another few weeks, but uh, will there be anything after that? And then what happened in the third season? How involved was Gene Roddenberry? And you're going to be very, very surprised. Uh, He was very involved. And uh, so he assigned all those scripts. Now, if he was involved, why is the third season not as good or considered not to be as good? And by the way, I think there are a lot of very, very good third season episodes, like The Empath, which was Gene Roddenberry's favorite Star Trek episode, period, and others of that type. But the budget was reduced so horribly, and it was given that terrible time slot because the network was determined they were going to kill this show, whatever it took. And so you, you find out what went into it. Uh, I looked at all these episodes and thought, okay, most of them are brilliant, but every now and then there's a turkey. Not on John D.F.'s watch, but (laughs) after that, certainly there were a few. And I looked at an episode like The Alternative Factor. What went wrong? Well, you can read about that in book one and find out why that episode stumbled. And now you want to know about Spock's brain. You want to know about a few of the others in season two and three. What were they thinking? You're going to find out what they're thinking from the memos. And one thing you will find out in every episode, as John mentioned before, they gave it 100%. Why some episode didn't work wasn't because they weren't trying to make it work. It was just things would happen because of the censors or the budget or an actor dropping out the day filming was supposed to start. Things of that nature that would might sabotage a certain episode and make it not as good as the others. So it's always interesting to find out the reasons that ones work and the reasons that others don't. Yeah, I, I cannot wait to read uh, the other two volumes. Do, do you know when, when they're coming out? We're running a little late. <laughs> <laughs> did, it, um, did your tire you, roll down a hill? <laughs> <laughs> yes, my tire, Mary, you gave away my secret. <laughs> I can't blame it on the tire rolling down the hill. Uh, book two was supposed to be out in mid-November. We're now looking at early December. Uh, and book three uh, was supposed to be mid-March. We're now looking at right around April 1st. So only a few weeks behind. But, uh, you know, there's just uh, so much that has to be done in preparing these books and uh, 
so much information that goes into them. Even though the, the books are written, it's now a, a matter of, of editing them, of putting in the, the pictures, of getting everything ready for print. And it's a, it's a very exhausting uh, process. I thought I was done with these. I'll be doing 14 hours a day, seven days a week on these books until it's looking like February of next year. And and you have a, a Kindle version coming out as well, a volume one? Yeah, that's we're preparing the Kindle version of book one right now. And that's a whole different formatting process, too, and, and uh, trying to get the pictures to go where you want them to go with Kindle's regulations and their, their yeah. formatting uh, uh, problems. But, you know, John and Mary could tell you they, they would work until... 2 a.m., sometimes until the sun was coming up when they were on that show. So it's funny, you know, in entertainment, people think we don't work. We have periods where we don't work at all. But when we're working, it's seven days a week. It's 14 hours a day or more. John and Mary, how late would you two go? Two or three in the morning sometimes. And then come back and uh, I'd get there at nine and John would get there at ten. And like we've said, we were young, and and we didn't notice what we were doing, and we were having a good time most of the time until things turned sour. So, you you, you just don't think about it; you just do it. I mean, yeah, that, that that's one of the things which I, I'm always really impressed by, especially with you know, uh, you know, all of these behind the scenes things is just the amount of work that goes into, you know, what what ends up being a you know 50 minute television program, and it's like wow. You know, after reading the book, I now want to watch the series along with the book, you know, wa- you know, read about it and then watch the episode so that I can really appreciate everything that went into it. And, um, and then watch a series about the making of the series. <laughs> seriously, know? like, Matt? I'm not kidding. I have been pushing for that exact kind of show for yeah. many years. Max and, and I you've actually written, <laughs> like, the Bible for that show. You, you, and the and the back episode, like, order being, like, not <laughs> known until the last minute. Winter Hiatus Cliffhanger. That is a show that the two of us have, have fantasized about watching for years. Literally years. We would kill to see that show. Well, th- thank you all very much for joining us. We really appreciate it, and we would love to have all of you back anytime. Uh, it- it's been a-, a-, a really, really big pleasure. Amen. Okay, it was uh, it was that was the end of the interview. It was really fun talking to Mark, John, and Mary. The name of the book is "These Are the Voyages." You can find it on Amazon right now. It is well worth picking up. It really is the best book ever written about. Star Trek, the original series. It's also the only book really of its type. Yeah. It was, it's very fun to talk to these people and we wish we could maybe tie them to chairs and talk to them for much longer. Yeah. But they have stuff to do. And Mark still has to finish the other two books. But we really appreciate them uh, spending time with us and we hope you enjoyed it. But this isn't the only conversation which we are having on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Park versus computers. Like there was some kind of salesman going around selling this this life-controlling model. It's, it's like the iMac, you know? Everyone had an iMac back in 1999 or whatever it was, right? The Bondi Blue Landrew. Earl Grey. Data. I think the only other time we see data in red is, uh, I think, in one of the parallel jumps in parallels. Yeah. I think it's future imperfect, maybe. With that funky combat. Is is data in red? Kind of like the song "Lady in Red." <laughs> data in red. <laughs> the orb. 
Majoran prophecies. <laughs> well, you know,、um, I was thinking that Haran was probably not so much a prophet as a Bajoran songwriter who just wrote really bad lyrics. The Ready Room. Or the uniform. Because I mean, I、right. didn't see Eddington feeling he was the bad guy in this. Oh, he、no. was doing what he believed in,、yeah. where I think Cisco seemed to me, you know, he definitely started to white whale on this. To the journey, Samantha and Naomi Wildman. She acted like a normal kid, except extremely yes. smart. Yes. Yeah. Granted, even though she was incredibly bright, because all Trek kids are, they're extremely advanced in the 24th century. She wasn't annoying like Wesley. Commentary: Trek stars. The Black and Christmas interview. Gene didn't really delve into anything with any depth. He, I think, he played the cards very close to his vest. He knew what he wanted, and he made sure he got it. And that's why he rewrote writers, and he, he, that's even why he rewrote me. Warp five. The Temporal Cold War. But as you say, with with Arch or future guy,、uh, if we were to assume it's Archer, he's not just making. You know, changes on, on a small detail or trying to recapture. You know, in Anorex's case, it's, it's getting his wife back. Right.、Um, he's looking to completely change the course of of history on a much broader scale. Trek news and views. The data network. With the data network, I wanted something that the Star Trek fans had already there. They didn't need to do anything. They just had to come along and be the Trekkie selves. Literary treks. Warden Ivory. Yeah, I thought that that was great that they finally explained that question that you had had why there are no gateways、uh, within、uh, the Bajoran system, and that that's not necessarily true, and that the fact is that the Akonians know the prophets. And that's what else is happening on Trek FM. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher. Tune in Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm/pd for podcast directory to get all the links.、Well, we want to thank Mark Cushman, John D. F. Black, and Mary Black again for joining us. It was a pleasure, and the book is called "These Are the Voyages." You can find it on Amazon. We will be back next week as we're joined by Drew and John to talk about Harlan Ellison's. City on the edge of forever. 